Introduction to A Cabinet Secret by Guy Boothby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Berard. Introduction to A Cabinet Secret by Guy Boothby. Introduction the author deems it right to preface his work with the remark that while the war between england and the south african republics forms the basis of the story the characters and incidents therein described are purely fictional and have no sort of resemblance either intended or implied with living people the author's only desire is to show what under certain doubtless improbable conditions might very well have happened had a secret power endeavored to harass the empire by taking advantage of her temporary difficulties a cabinet secret introduction night was falling and naples harbor always picturesque appeared even more so than usual in the warm light of the departing day. The city itself, climbing up the hillside, almost from the water's edge, was colored a pale pink by the sunset, and even old Vesuvius, from whose top a thin column of black smoke was issuing, seemed somewhat less somber than usual. Out issue words, the heavens were a mass of gold and crimson coloring, and this was reflected in the calm waters of the bay, till the whole world was a veritable glow. Taken altogether, a more beautiful evening could scarcely have been desired, and yet it is not with the city, the mountain, or the sunset that we have to do, but with the first movement of a conspiracy that was destined ultimately to shake one of the greatest empires the earth has ever seen to the very foundations of its being though the world was not aware of it and would not in all human probability have considered itself very much about it even if it had the fact remains that for some hours past two men from a house situated on one of the loftiest pinnacles of the city had been concentrating their attention by means of powerful glasses upon the harbour closely scrutinizing every vessel that entered and dropped her anchor inside the mole. "'Can anything have happened that she does not come?' asked the taller of the pair, as he put down his glasses and began to pace the room. The cable said most distinctly that the steam-yacht, Princess Badrolbador, passed through the Straits of Messina yesterday at seven o'clock. Surely they should be here by this time.' one would have thought so his companion replied it must be borne in mind however that the princess is a private yacht and it is more likely as the wind is fair that the owner is sailing in order to save his fuel to the devil with him then for his english meanness answered the other angrily he does not know how anxious we are to see her and everything taken into consideration it is just as well for us and for the safety of his passengers 
that he does not his friend retorted if he did his first act after he dropped anchor would be to hand them over to the tender mercies of the police in that case we should be ruined for ever and a day perhaps that aspect of the affair has not struck you it is evident that you take me for a fool the other answered angrily of course i know all that but it does not make me any the less anxious to see them consider for a moment what we have at stake never before has there been such a chance of bringing to her knees one of the proudest nations of the earth and to think that if that vessel does not put in an appearance within the next few hours all our preparations may be in vain she will be here in good time never fear his companion replied soothingly she has never disappointed us yet not willingly i will admit the other returned but in this matter she may not be her own mistress she is a beautiful woman and for all we know to the contrary this english milord may be prolonging the voyage in order to enjoy her society who knows but that he may carry her off altogether in that case his country should erect a memorial to him similar to the nelson monument said the smaller man for it is certain he will have rendered her as great a service as that empty-sleeved hero ever did the other did not reply but after another impatient glance at the harbour once more began to pace the room he was a tall handsome fellow little more than thirty years of age and carried himself with soldierly erectness the most casual observer would have noticed that he was irreproachably dressed and that his manners were those of one accustomed to good society his companion on the other hand was short and stout with a round bullet head and closely cropped hair he was also the possessor of a pair of small twinkling eyes and a neck so thick that one instinctively thought of apoplexy and sudden death in connection with its owner the room they occupied was strangely at variance with the appearance of the younger and taller man it was little more than a garret very dirty and furnished in the poorest fashion but it had one advantage it commanded a splendid view of naples harbour and after all that was what its present occupants required at last the younger man tired of his sentry go up and down the room threw himself into a chair and lit a cigarette for some minutes not a word passed between them all the time however the shorter man remained at the window his glass turned seaward watching for the smallest sign of the vessel they were so eagerly expecting suddenly he uttered an exclamation which caused the other to spring to his feet what is it cried the latter what do you see i fancy she is coming up now his friend replied if you run your glass along the skyline i fancy you will be able to detect a white speck with a tiny column of smoke above it the other followed the directions given him and after a careful scrutiny gave it as his opinion that what his companion had said was correct 
Nearly an hour elapsed, however, before they could be quite certain upon the subject. At last, the matter was settled beyond doubt, and when a magnificent white yacht rounded the mole and came to its anchorage in the mercantile harbor, they prepared to make their way down to the waterside in order to board her. Before they started, however, the elder of the two men affected sundry changes in his attire. Forgive the mummery, he remarked, as he took a somewhat clerical hat and cloak from a peg. But as they say upon the stage, the unities must be observed. If our beautiful countess has played her cards carefully, Monseigneur should be of great benefit to us hereafter. It would be a thousand pities to scare him away at the beginning. For this reason, it will be as well for you to remember that I am her excellency's lawyer, who has hastened to Naples in order to confer with her on a matter of considerable importance, connected with her Styrian estates. No suspicion will then be excited. By the time he had finished speaking, he had donned the hat and cloak, and when he had given another expression to his face, for the man was a consummate actor, he was satisfied that he looked the part he was about to play. After that, they descended the narrow, rickety stairs together, and passed out into the street. It was a warm afternoon, and, in consequence, Naples was in her most unsavory humor. The two men, however, did not appear to trouble themselves very much about it. Side by side, they made their way through the crowded streets, almost in silence. Each was thinking of the approaching interview, and of what was to result from it. Reaching the harbor, they chartered a boat and bade the rower convey them to the white yacht, which had just dropped her anchor. The man obeyed, and in less than five minutes they were lying alongside one of the most beautiful pleasure vessels that has ever upheld the ship-building honor of the Clyde. The port formalities had already been complied with, and now the accommodation ladder was hanging at the side in readiness for visitors. When they drew up at its foot, the tall man, addressing the quartermaster on duty at the gangway, inquired whether Madame la Comtesse de Venezia were aboard, and, if so, whether she would permit visitors to pay their respects to her. It was noticeable that he spoke excellent English, with scarcely a touch of foreign accent. The man departed with the message to presently return with the report that madame would be pleased to see the gentlemen if they would come aboard they accordingly climbed the ladder and followed the quartermaster along the deck to a sumptuous saloon under the bridge the owner of the beautiful craft was in the act of leaving the cabin as they approached it won't you come in he said pausing to open the door for them the countess will be very pleased to see you. As he said this, he glanced sharply at the two men, with an Englishman's innate distrust of foreigners. He saw little in them, however, to criticize, and nothing to dislike. They, on their side, found him a tall, stalwart Englishman of the typical standard blue eyes, ruddy cheeks, close-cropped hair, the latter a little inclined to be curly. 
well, but not overdressed, and carrying with him an air of latent strength that, in spite of his good-humoured expression, would have made most people chary of offending him. When the two men entered the cabin, he closed the door behind them and ran lightly up the ladder to the bridge. After his departure, there was a momentary but somewhat embarrassing silence. A long shaft of sunlight streamed in through one of the windows, for they resembled windows more than portholes, and revealed the fact that the lady, who was reclining in a long easy chair, was extremely beautiful. Despite the cordial message she had sent, her visitors could scarcely have been welcome, for she did not even take the trouble to rise to receive them, but allowed a tall grey-haired man, who might very well have passed for her father, to do the honours for her. "'My dear Luigi, my dear Conrad,' he said, offering his right hand to the smaller of the two men, and his left to the other. "'It is indeed kind of you to be so quick to welcome us.' The Countess is a little tired this afternoon, but she is none the less delighted to see you. The scornful curl of the lady's lips not only belied this assertion, but indicated that Milady was in a by no means pleasant temper. The impatient movement of the little foot, peeping from beneath her dress, said as much, as plainly as any words could speak. We have been waiting for you all day, the young man began. There is news of the greatest importance to communicate. Every hour that passes is now so much time wasted. Then, for the first time during the interview, the lady spoke. You infer that I might have been quicker, she said, with a touch of scorn in her voice. You evidently forgot that, had it not been for this English milord's kindness, I should not be here even now. It looked as if the younger man, while really uncomfortable, were trying to act as if he were not afraid of her. Is there not such a thing as the Oriental Express? he asked. Had you used that, we might have met at Turin, and have saved a great deal of trouble and valuable time. The lady turned impatiently from him to his companion. "'What form does your news take?' she inquired. "'Is it contained in a letter?' "'No, Excellenza. It was to be delivered by word of mouth,' the other replied. "'The council, who were in Prague at the time, paid me the compliment of trusting to my discretion, and dispatched me immediately to you. We heard that you were in Constantinople, and the secretary undertook to have a message transmitted to you there. Our friend, Conrad here, is perhaps not aware that the Oriental Express is occasionally an impossible medium. But, while condoling with you on that score, I must congratulate your excellency in having pressed the Duke of Rotherhithe into your service. Pray spare yourself the trouble the lady replied. I do not know that I am particularly fond of obtaining hospitality, such as his, under false pretenses. It is sufficient for your purposes, is it not, that I am here and ready to do the council's bidding, whatever they may be? Perhaps you will be good enough to tell me what is expected of me. Is it safe for me to tell you here, 
Luigi inquired, and as he said it, he looked anxiously about him, as if he feared the presence of eavesdroppers. "'As safe as it will be anywhere,' the lady answered. "'It is an Englishman's yacht, and whatever we may say of them, they are not in the habit of listening at keyholes. Now, what have you to tell me?' The man hesitated once more before he replied. He was the chosen mouthpiece of one of the most powerful organizations in Europe, and ere now affairs involving death, and worse than death, had been entrusted to him, and he had brought them to a satisfactory issue. As a rule, and certainly when dealing with men, he did not know what fear was. In this lady's presence, however, he was strangely nervous. Come, she said, you are a long time telling me. Is it so very difficult to explain? Or am I to anticipate a repetition of the Palermo incident? Whatever the Palermo incident may have been, it was certainly not a pleasant recollection to either of the men before her. The older man became uncomfortable, while the younger moved uneasily in his seat. You hit hard, madame, the elder man returned. But, thank goodness, I am not thin-skinned. That the Palermo affair was a mistake, I am quite prepared to admit. It is possible, however, the success which will doubtless attend this affair will make ample amends for it. You have not told me what the affair is, the lady replied. Unless you make haste, I fear I shall not be able to hear it tonight. It would be as well for you to remember that I am not my own mistress, and that, in return for his hospitality, my host has at least some claim upon my society. I will not detain you longer than is absolutely necessary, the other replied. With your permission, I will now explain my mission. Of course, your excellency is aware that the British Empire is on the eve of a serious struggle with the two South African republics. The republics in question have been arming for several years, and there can be no sort of doubt that the war, which is now about to begin, will make the most enormous demands upon the resources and capabilities of even that great empire. That the country, at least so far as its military organization is concerned, is not properly prepared for such an encounter, admits of no doubt. Her armament is well known to be deficient, if not defective. She possesses but few generals, whose experience entitles them to the right of leading her troops, as they should be led, against a foe which will have in its ranks some of the best fighting men in the world. While the nature of the country in which she will have to fight, and the peculiar tactics of the enemy, are unfavorable to her in the highest degree. Apart from this, it has been her boast that she occupies an isolated position in Europe, if not in the world. France, Russia, Germany, and Holland are avowedly unfavorable. Spain remembers Great Britain's sympathy with America in the Cuban affair. Portugal will wait to see what turn events take before she commits herself, while America will stand strictly neutral. We all remember that the larger republic has beaten her before. It is possible that it may do so again. 
All these things have been taken into consideration. It must be quite clear to an observant mind that if England is ever to be humiliated, now is the time to do it. With this end in view, the council was summoned hastily to meet in Prague. The result of their deliberations was the drawing up of a plan of action, and as soon as this has been agreed upon, I was ordered to place myself in communication with you. You were in Constantinople, and, as I have said, a message was immediately dispatched by the secretary to you. I received it, and am here. What am I to do? I can tell you no more than that you are to make your way to England at once, via Rome and Paris. Von Rosendell is in Rome. He will meet you and give you full particulars of the scheme which has been proposed. And when am I to leave Naples in order to meet him? As soon as possible, the other replied. There is no time to waste. I was to invite you to make your arrangements at once, and to telegraph the hour of your departure in the usual way. In that case, I need not detain you any longer, she answered with chilling politeness. Should it be necessary for me to communicate with you, I presume the usual address will find you. But what? Is there anything else I am to hear? There is this, that I am to go with you, the younger man put in, almost apologetically. I received my orders from the council this morning. I hope you do not disapprove. He looked at her almost beseechingly. The expression upon her face, however, betrayed neither pleasure nor annoyance. Do what he would, he could not prevent a sigh from escaping him, as he became aware of it. All day he had been hoping that she would be pleased when she heard that he was to cooperate with her. Now, however, his heart sank like lead. It was just the sort of enterprise he liked. It was daring reckless to a degree they would carry their lives in their hands as they had so often done before indeed the mere fact that he was to share the dangers with her had been the greatest pleasure he had known for months past if you are to accompany us she said scarcely looking at him you had better hold yourself in readiness it will be safer if we travel apart during the time we are in Italy, and afterwards other arrangements can be made so that we... We will leave you and return to the shore, interrupted the man called Luigi, who did not altogether approve of the turn affairs were taking. I have carried out my instructions, and so far as I am concerned, individually, the matter is at an end. Five minutes later they had left the yacht, and the Countess de Venezia, was apologizing to the Duke of Rotherhithe for the intrusion of her lawyer people on his yacht. It is really too hard, she said pathetically. They give me no peace. When my husband died and I inherited his estates, he had no thought of the trouble and anxiety the management of them would cause me. My lawyers are perpetually grumbling because they cannot obtain interviews with me. I often think that they look upon me as a sort of will-o'-the-wisp, flickering about Europe and impossible to catch. 
why they could not have transacted the business with my father instead of bothering me with it i cannot imagine however you will forgive me will you not the duke who by the way was extremely susceptible looked unutterable things he had first met the countess in algiers a year before and had fallen desperately in love with her before he had known her twenty-four hours the mere fact that she did not encourage his attentions only served to attract him the more they met at cairo six months later and now when he discovered that it was in his power to do her a service by conveying her from constantinople to naples he was only too glad to avail himself of the opportunity it is a shame indeed that they would worry you so he said sympathetically looking as he spoke into his fair friend's eyes in a manner that would have carried consternation into the hearts of not a few mothers in england they worry me at home in much the same way as i say to them what's the use of employing lawyers and estate agents and all those sort of people if they cannot do their work without your assistance you might just as well do it yourself in the first instance and save their salaries but then you see i am not so clever as you are countess and that makes all the difference what makes you think i am so clever pray she inquired looking up at him with innocent eyes oh i don't know he replied i've noticed it on lots of occasions do you remember the day that plausible greek beggar worried us so in constantinople and you whispered something to him that sent him off about his business like a shot out of a gun and in algiers when that frenchman made himself so objectionable and you managed to send him to the right about after a few moments conversation how you did it i never could understand but it was jolly clever all the same the countess regarded him attentively for a moment was he really as innocent as he made out to be or had he noticed anything else no one moment's examination was sufficient to convince her that so far as he was concerned all was as it should be strolling to the port side of the bridge she looked down at the boatload of musicians who were strumming guitars and bawling finicula finicula with all the strength of their southern lungs what a way in which to spend one's life said the duke as he joined her and tossed some silver into the boat fancy shouting that wretched thing week after week and year after year italy is a funny country all bandits soldiers beggars and musicians i suppose if the truth were known each of those men belongs to some secret society or another either the cameristi or the mafia or some such organization how would you like to be a conspirator countess and be always in terror of being caught the countess's hand clenched the bar before her and for a moment her face turned deathly pale what an extraordinary question to ask she began fighting hard for her self-possession do you want to frighten me out of my wits i am afraid i should make the poorest conspirator imaginable i should be too deficient in courage i am not inclined to believe that said the duke reflectively 
I think you would have plenty of courage when it was required. I am afraid you must think me an altogether remarkable person, she returned. If you go on in this way, I shall scarcely have presence of mind enough to remain in your company. Seriously, however, Duke, I don't know how to thank you for the services you have rendered my father and myself. But for your assistance, we should not be in Naples now, in which case we should have been too late to have joined the party with whom I am proceeding to England. You are going to England, then, after all he cried in great astonishment and delight i thought you were only going as far as rome that was our original intention she replied however some letters that we received to-night have altered our plans but why do you look so astonished are we poor foreigners not to be allowed to enter your country it is not that he said I was so pleased to hear that you intend honoring us with a visit. When do you think you will reach England? And where will you stay while you are there? She shook her head. Those are questions I cannot at present answer, she said. It will depend upon circumstances. As our arrangements stand at present, I think it is extremely likely that we shall be in London in less than a week's time. And will there be any means of learning your whereabouts? He asked you will surely not be cruel enough to visit england without permitting me to call upon you call by all means she answered at present however i cannot tell you what our address will be for the reason that i do not know it myself but perhaps when you are settled you will let me know you know my house i think i will do so with pleasure she replied then you will come and see me, and I shall be able to thank you again for the kindness you have shown my father and myself in our present trouble. It has been a very great pleasure to me, he said, and I cannot thank you sufficiently for honoring my yacht as you have done. At that moment, the elder man, to whom she had referred as her father, made his appearance on the bridge and came towards them. My dear, he began, has it not struck you that it is time for us to be thinking of bidding his grace farewell? Remember, we have to start for Rome by the early train tomorrow morning. It behoves us, therefore, to make our preparations as soon as possible. The Duke, however, would not hear of their leaving the yacht before dinner, and in consequence it was quite dark when the Countess di Venezia and her father, or, to be more correct, her reputed father, were rowed ashore by four stalwart yachtsmen, steered by the Duke of Rotherhithe himself. He would have accompanied them to their hotel, but this the Countess would not permit. "'You have done too much for us already,' she said. "'We cannot let you do more. We will not say adieu, but au revoir, since, in all probability, it will not be long before we meet again.' I hope, with all my heart, it may not be, he replied, and then the cab they had engaged rattled away over the stones and was soon lost to view. The countess's stay in Naples was a short one, for next morning she left by an early train for Rome. According to the plan he had prepared, his grace of Rotherheim 
having made inquiries as to the trains leaving Naples for the capital, was present on the platform when the first took its departure. With an eagerness that could only be accounted for by his infatuation, he scanned the faces of the passengers, but the lady for whom he had been so anxiously waiting was not among them. Greatly disappointed by his discovery, he went off in search of breakfast, only to return a quarter of an hour before the next train was due to leave. Unfortunately, on this occasion, he was no more successful than before. The train was well filled, but among the passengers there was not one who bore any sort of a resemblance to the lady he was hoping to see. So anxious was he to make sure that he did not miss her, that, just before the train started, he came within an ace of being run into by an invalid chair, in which was seated a man closely muffled up with shawls. By the side of the chair walked a nurse in English hospital uniform, who wore large blue glasses and carried more wraps and a couple of cushions upon her arm. Even had he been aware of their identity, the Duke would have found it difficult to recognize in the pair his guests of the previous day. It was not the first time in their careers that they had been compelled to adopt such disguises, and only that morning news had reached them to the effect that, if they desired to get safely out of Naples, disguises such as they had assumed would be imperative necessities. A carriage, it appeared, had been reserved for the invalid Englishman, and towards it they made their way. Having seated the old gentleman in one corner, the nurse took her seat opposite him, and busied herself preparing for the journey. It was not until Naples was far behind, however, that she removed her spectacles and the invalid distorted his wraps. That was as narrow an escape as we have ever had, said the former. The head of the police was upon the platform, and I recognized two detectives in the crowd. However, all is well that ends well, and if Luigi's arrangements have been properly made, we should be in Paris before they know we have left Naples, and in London forty-eight hours afterwards. Then you still feel certain that they were aware of our presence in Naples? Luigi's message said there was no doubt about it, though he did not know it. They must have been watching him, and have followed him to the yacht. It was foolish of him to run such a risk. Let us hope, however, he will be able to get out of Naples without their laying hands upon him. Shortly after one o'clock the train reached Rome, and they alighted from it. Such travellers, as had witnessed the arrival of the invalid at the Neapolitan railway station, would have observed now that he seemed greatly fatigued by the journey. He was even more muffled up than before, while the nurse was, if possible, more assiduous in her attentions than she had been at the southern station. It was noticeable, also, that she was a poor Italian scholar. Indeed, her pronunciation of such words as she did know was of the most erratic and elementary description. Later in the day, just as dusk was falling, an artist's model, in the picturesque dress of the country, might have been observed making her way slowly down the Via Sistina, in the direction of the Piazza St. 
Trinita de Monte. She appeared to be familiar with the neighborhood, though, on the other hand, no one seemed to have any acquaintance with her. She had reached the Casa Zuccheri when she was stopped by a tall, artistic-looking man, who walked with great uprightness and carried a portfolio beneath his arm. For the benefit of the passers-by, he inquired in broken Italian whether the girl could inform him as to the locality of a certain artist's studio, whereupon she personally offered to conduct him to it. He thanked her courteously, and proceeded with her in the direction indicated. They had no sooner left the vicinity of the Via Sistina, however, than he turned to her and said, in the purest Italian, I was afraid you were not coming. You are very late. I am aware of that, the girl replied. I had a suspicion that I was being watched. Now, what have you to tell me? You saw Luigi in Naples, I believe? He met me there with Conrad, the girl answered. I could not help thinking it was an imprudence on his part. Luigi is always imprudent, and yet I cannot help feeling that he is safer in his folly than we are in our care. He told you of the scheme the council had originated? The girl nodded an assent. He gave me to understand, however, that you would furnish me with full particulars, she said. I am prepared to do so now, her companion replied. As he said this, he led her from the main street into a dark alley, where, having convinced himself that they had not been followed, he set to work and told his tale. So anxious was he that there should be no mistake about the matter, that when he had finished it he began it again, only to repeat it a third time. The woman listened with rapt attention. In conclusion, said he, I might add that the money will be paid to your credit at whatever London bank you may select. One of the most handsome residences, replete with all the necessaries, has been taken for you in a fashionable quarter, and on your arrival in London you will be left to act as your knowledge of the situation and the dictates of the council may determine. It is needless to caution you as to the risks you may be called upon to run. The council has, moreover, authorized me to say that it places implicit trust in your discretion. Should you require further advice, it will be furnished you at once, with any help that may be considered needful. In the meantime, Paris is the first stage, the girl answered. You are quite certain that this Englishman, Sir George Manderville, has not yet returned to England? No, he is still there, her companion replied. We have learnt, however, that he will cross the channel on Friday next. On Friday next? she repeated. In that case, there is no time to lose. At first glance, it would appear that he is the key to the situation. That is exactly the opinion of the council, the man answered. Now, farewell, and may good luck attend you. So saying, they retraced their steps to the main street. At the entrance to the alley they separated, the girl returning to the Via Sistina, the man going off in an opposite direction. By the first train next morning, the Countess de Venezia made an unostentatious departure from Rome for Paris, accompanied by her father and her cousin, Conrad, Count Reifenberg. End of Introduction